dimensional, transforming, musical, linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. So, how are all of you today? Sorry it's been so long since I've been here in the salon to get another McKenna talk out, but I'll tell you about that story a little later. Now, it is uh, good to have you back here again, though, for another installment of Terrence McKenna's Walk in the Valley of Novelty. And I think you're you're really going to enjoy this one, uh, among other things Terrence does uh, uh, here on this uh, this clip I'm playing is uh, part of his famous rap about the transcendental object at the end of time. And uh, I know most of you have heard that uh, once or twice before, and so uh, it's one I think you'll enjoy. It's always a little different each time. And as you know, uh, this is from a workshop that Terrence held in the, the summer of 1998. At least uh, you know that if you've heard the previous two podcasts, uh, or the first two parts of this workshop uh, were, were podcasts. And uh, this part, uh, by the way, begins with his uh, thoughts about the year 2012. So keep in mind that this was in 1998 he's saying this. Uh, and uh, he called uh, the year 2012 a year where there could be a possible cultural singularity. And uh, I point this out because uh, the word cultural uh, attached to singularity, because uh, lately uh, there's been some discussion on the net about uh, Terence's, they think Terence's misunderstanding of uh, what they see as a uh, technological or scientific or mathematical singularity. you know, the criticism, I think, is mainly coming from, uh, you know, the Ph.D. math and physics guys who are using the term much more precisely than I think Terence intended when he spoke of a cultural singularity, you know, uh, more as a poetic term, I think, than uh, as a scientific one. So, uh, you scientific types out there, hey, uh, loosen up a bit, you know, have a, have a toke or two and and listen to how a, a bard and not a scientist uh, sees these uh, interesting times that we now find ourselves in. Now enslave yourself to the machine. <laughs> Can you expand on the 2012 date and this whole idea what's going to be happening in your idea? Well, I talked this morning about uh, how the story of the universe is that information, which I call novelty, is struggling to free itself from habit, which I call entropy, and that this process, which informs the whole history of the universe on all scales, chemical, biological, cultural, etc., is accelerating, speeding up. And it seems as if what wants to happen is the whole cosmos wants to change into information or put another way in a geometric model, all points want to become connected. The thing is achieved through connectivity. The path of complexity to its goals is through connecting things together. Well, if that's true, then you can imagine that there is an ultimate 
end state of that process. It's the moment when every point in the universe is connected to every other point in the universe. And if that's what the universe is trying to do to overcome its uh, dissipate state, its spread out state, and somehow function as a unitary monad, then uh, this, this point does not lie too far ahead of us in time, given the acceleration rates of, of all these technical processes. So, at least locally. So, on one level, I think there is a cultural singularity. A cultural, what I mean by that is a place in our cultural development where we can't predict or understand what will happen to us. A kind of flip point, if you want, or doorway, if you want, or revelation, if you want. And uh, it's built in to the structure of space and time. It's that novelty in its emergence is now operating at such a fine scale that it's actually reflected in the lives of individual people. The human adventure has become the cutting edge uh, of cosmic destiny. and But it won't always be so. It will actually move through the human domain and into smaller and more rapid and compressed domains of concrescence and probably in our lifetimes. And what will this mean or what will it look like? It seems to me it's just not possible to say because we're too far away from it. Even though it's only 14 years in the future, if it's in 2012, those 14 years are going to be, are going to be so mutational, so transformational, that right now in time we can't see around the corner. We're summoning strange helpers to our aid. The the machines that we had such confidence in controlling are actually a kind of intellecty of some sort that is alive and with us in the historical continuum and evolving at a far faster rate than we are. And what all this leads to and how it works is very, very difficult to predict. And I'm not a paranoid. I don't see... I don't... I think it's very difficult to predict. I think we wished for transformation. Western civilization built it into its cultural agenda. Science delivered far more than we ever dreamed in terms of understanding of matter and energy and space and time. And now, under the aegis of market capitalism, where everything is in a state of furious competition, somebody is going to put something together that is just going to completely redefine and rewrite the nature of reality itself. And my bet is it will be some kind of a technology. It may, it could be a drug. It could be a machine. I, it would be nice to think that it might be a technique or a teaching. But just looking at the history of the human race, I'll bet you it's some kind of technology slash drug type thing that is just going to be plugged in to us and our consciousness and our aspirations. And it may already be here. It may be the internet. 
It may be nanotechnology. It may be uh, biotechnology and cloning and quantum teleportation and uh, virtual reality and all the rest of this. I mean, we are just at the brink of taking these various pieces of the god-magician puzzle and putting them together and figuring out, well, what can you do? What do you do if you can do anything? I mean, that's really the question at the end of history. Once you have overcome all limitation, what is the human agenda? Yeah. Uh, do, you, um, do you believe then that this is something that we're just we're observing or we actually play a part in its development? Uh, so what is the purpose of these hallucinogenic exper- experiences? Is it to get information so we can influence the outcome or we just, are we just watching? No, I think we're more than watching. I think we are we spin it. We're the spin doctors of the thing. In other words, if there is a prophecy which must be fulfilled, it's a kind of general prophecy. Something like, and man shall become dirigible in the last decades of the or the first decade of the third millennium. It's general. In other words, what does that mean? Man becomes dirigible. We turn into airships. We become oblate spheroids. We what? 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 What does it mean? Well, that's open to human definition through specific acts of creation. Uh, The levels of novelty or habit in any given moment will be fulfilled. But how they're fulfilled is a matter of human decision. An example which maybe makes this clearer is from statistics. For example, we know that in the next 12 months, between 8 and 11 people will jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. But who those people will be is surely not decided today. They have the right, through the experiences they meet along the way, to either include or disinclude themselves in that... uh, group of of, uh, victims. So in that same way, I think the future, the the details are ours to fabricate. The great landscape over which the city of time will be built is given by natural law. And where we are in time is very near this attractor how, and then people sometimes object to this and say, well, don't you think it's weird, a weird coincidence that we happen to be so near the attractor when presumably it could have been throughout time? Well, no, I don't think it's weird. I think our, the strangeness of our condition signifies the nearness of the attractor. That the reason our world is so accelerated, the reason all effects are being smeared toward Omega is because of the nearby presence of this cultural black hole, this singularity of technology and biological intent that is feeding backwards into time these apocalyptic images. And I, you know, would predict that between now and 2012, there will be ever more hysteria, prophecy, prediction, revelation, squirrely teachings, 
people bawling out their strange despair on every street corner. Uh, because in the collective unconscious of which each of us shares a part, the thing at the end of time is spinning like a club ornament, like a Christmas tree ball, like a bar ornament. And it's throwing off scintillations which are distorted images of itself. The transcendental object at the end of time infects the history that precedes it with the, sh- with the images of its un- approaching unfoldment. This is what I mean when I say history is the shockwave of eschatology. The presence of history on this planet means that this thing is moving beneath the surface, this protean form that when it manifests, it will shed the institutions of history the way a butterfly sheds a chrysalis when it breaks out of its metamorphosis. But the, the period of latency, the period inside the shell for this metamorphosing super creature is the 25,000 year season that we call human history. The fact that it's the same period of time as the precession of the equinoxes, I don't know, don't ask me. Fortune or coincidence. Uh, yeah. Terrence, I'm interested in your reaction to the recent announcement by astronomers that more than 90% of the universe is composed of something called dark matter. Well, this, is a, this has been a problem in astrophysics for a while. What it is, is to state the problem differently, uh, the universe seems to hold together far better than it should given the amount of matter that we can observe. Uh, in other words, given the amount of matter we can observe, our physics of gravitation tells us that the galaxies should fling themselves to pieces and everything should form, should uh, assume a kind of uniformity. Why doesn't it do that? This is called the dark matter problem. My thinking on this is this is a good problem for novelty theory to cut its teeth on because I don't believe that 90% of the matter in the universe goes unobserved. I think the neutrino has a slight mass and that that accounts for a significant portion of the unobserved mass in the universe. And the rest of it, it's not that there's mass missing. It's that there's a law missing. And behold, what law is it? It's the law of novelty on one level because if you believe there is something called novelty, working at extragalactic and galactic scales, then that answers your question. Why does the Milky Way tend to stay the Milky Way? The answer is because as a spiral galaxy, it's a more complex organism, a more complex structure than it is as a dissipated, homogeneous mass. So it's that, and if this were proven, you would actually have begin to work toward a quantified measurement of the strength of the novelty field. Because you would just, you would take the known mass of the universe, you would subtract the newly discovered mass of the neutrino, and the amount that was left, you would assign, you would proclaim as the novelty constant, 
which is the constant which then causes large-scale structures to persist through time for no other reason than that they represent higher orders of uh, organization. You know, recently, you know, the most recent ultra-revolution in astrophysics, which means in the last six weeks these days, uh, is the discovery that there seems to be some kind of repulsive force, a kind of anti-gravity, if you will, that the universe seems to be expanding slightly faster than the laws of physics say it should. And they've gone back to some work Einstein did and rejected in the 20s where he actually hypothesized this this anti-gravitational factor. Uh, this, if proven, would be a treme- could be arguably a tremendous piece of evidence in favor of novelty theory because one of the things novelty theory says is the universe never goes back to its initial conditions. Well, in astrophysics, there's been this debate, does it or doesn't it? If, if gravity, if the force of gravity is at a certain level, then eventually the outward expansion of matter in the universe would be halted and the whole thing would implode upon itself. The latest findings indicate that will not happen, that the universe grows outward into infinity forever, never retracing its steps and always elaborating new forms and new uh, emergent properties. Yeah. Um, Let's see, I've had an experience on drugs, uh, and I've read about it. Other people have had a similar experience, which is that... um, your, what's presented to you as perception is uh, a, uh, takes the form of a series of stills. And uh, so this resonates for me with some teachings in Buddhism and in Sufism that um, basically um, what appears to us as manifestation is actually coming through as a series of stills and we kind of glue it together with our their uh, mentation of it. And I wondered if you had come across this or you have any comments on this uh, or you think of it's, it's just a stray phenomenon or is it of some cosmological import? Or Well, it's certainly interesting that film and uh, talkies and all that really got rolling in the 20s, which is when quantum theory really got rolling. And quantum theory is on one level a theory that reality is delivered as a series of stills, you know, this mysterious quantum between which then there is some great incomprehensible gulf and these things arrive this way. I know what you mean. I have seen the slideshow, the series of hallucinations where it's click and this thing hangs in space, no movement whatsoever, click, weird uh, (laughs) and, and interesting. But on the other hand, uh, I've seen all kinds of weird themes and variations on simply a visionary movie. That's one kind of hallucination. For instance, I sometimes see text, and then as I watch the text, the level of sense and nonsense drifts. Words flip over, letters turn themselves upside down, words that made sense are replaced by gibberish. And, well, now what kind of hallucination is that? That you have to be a printhead 
I mean, could a Witoto have a, a hallucination like that where text was going through these variations? Ralph has described to me mathematical hallucinations, you know, drifting parentheses and factorial signatures and all this stuff moving around and you're watching it and you understand it somehow, you know. Um, uh, I've had those things like when you're a little kid and you get it in a cereal box and you pull it one way and the lion is in the cage you push it one way and the bars become what the uh, the foreground reverses and becomes the background and now there's a tiger in the cage mm-hmm. and I describe the hallucinations with the sliders on them uh, and so I don't know I think it's all and everything uh, you cannot conceive of information in a way that the hallucinogens then can't see your bid and raise the ante. Yeah. Um, what is it about the I Ching that qualified you in the eyes of the entity that it revealed the time wave? I, I have a sense of an attractor. Uh, I'd see what the I Ching is, but I don't see the relationship. Well, here it is in a nutshell, or a nutshell, as James Joyce said. Uh, I was not a Sinologist. I was not a scholar of Confucian or Han Dynasty occultism. Uh, the good news is the part of the I Ching that I looked at is older than all of that. Uh, what my attention was drawn to, is the only way I can put it, by this teaching entity, was the sequence of the King Wen sequence. Little detail, King Wen is a person who may or may not have been a real person who supposedly lived around 1150 B.C., and he got into some political trouble and he was put into prison and while he was in prison he arranged the sequences of the the, the hexagrams of the I Ching into a sequence which is called the King Wen sequence and which is the sequence traditionally used in China ever since. Well, so the teaching voice said look at the sequence and uh, and the first question it was like posed as a series of questions a dialogue between a teacher and a student the question it posed for me is is the sequence a sequence and, or is it simply a traditional jumble now what would be the difference well if it's a sequence then there's a rule that makes it that orders it if it's just a jumble then there is no rule that orders it. It's just like a randomly shuffled pack of cards. So I was like, you know, this is in over my head kind of stuff. I was basically just an Asian traveling freak. Uh, but I looked at what's called the first order of difference. The first order of difference is how many lines change as you go from one hexagram to the next not a very deep concept. I mean, uh, the first hexagram is all solid lines. The second hexagram is all broken lines. 
hexagrams have six lines. Therefore, what is the first order of difference as you go from hexagram one to two? Six. Six. All lines change. So I graphed this. And to make a long story short, I discovered artificial arrangements. I discovered that these hexagrams had been arranged to cause certain results to occur. That somebody had gone in there with an intent to achieve certain mathematical uh, uh, conservation effects. And I worked on it and worked on it. And eventually what came out of it was a fractal algorithm, a wave for you and I. And this wave is like a stock market graph, except that it's not showing the price of something. It's showing the ebb and flow of habit and novelty. And when the wave moves upward, habit, entropy, conservation, recidivism is increasing. And when the wave moves down, novelty, innovation, information connectivity, anti-entropic process is increasing. And the idea was that this would allow an understanding of history, that you would be able to lay the wave over the past. And when you got a perfect matchup with past revolutions, breakthroughs, atrocities, migrations, language changes, and so forth, you would just propagate the wave forward into the future And you would have not only a a theory of history, you would have a theory of future time. And uh, so all this was done, to make a long story short. And the, the nature of the mathematical object being used was that it was a damped oscillation or it was a self limiting cycle. So it didn't just go on and on to infinity. It actually had a finite end. Well, the big surprise was when we got it matched up to history in the way that we felt was the best way, the way that most true to the most events in the intuition of the largest number of people kind of argument, then we went to see where is the end point. Where is the singularity? Thinking that it could be hundreds of years in the future, thousands of years in the future, millions of years in the future. This was in 1975. Discovered, no, it's 38 years in the future. Uh, so that, that was the first surprise, that the wave, which seemed to work so well on the past, burdened itself with a near-term prediction that seemed highly unlikely. The second surprise came some six weeks later when somebody pointed out that to the day, to the day, we had calculated our way to the end of the Mayan calendar. Now that is weird, folks. Um, The only thing I have in common with the Mayan calendar is that we both, I and the Maya, took psychedelic mushrooms. Well, is it so woo-woo that it's actually as though there's a barcode in there? 
And if you get deep enough in and pass all the gates and pass all the passwords and get to the sanctum sanctorum, that then is revealed this access point of time. Whether you are doing it a thousand years ago as or two thousand years ago even as the Maya did it, or whether you're doing it 38 years in advance of the moment, that this is the message the mathematical, astronomical, Pythagorean download that the mushroom uh, seems to give a lot of people. I mean, I don't say if you take mushrooms, you will find yourself caught up in the dynamics of the Mayan calendar, but you might. Many have. Uh, I certainly... Um, you know, I'm more uh, more rational than I may sound here. I'm a good person to be the message for such a squirrely idea because I doubt. I know absolutely how flaky this sounds, how unlikely, how lightly anchored. So I'm no, uh, I'm not here to found a cult. I just had a very wiggy experience that unlike, you know, the problem with most people's really wiggy experiences is that it never gets down to the nitty-gritty. Uh, and by the nitty-gritty, I basically mean a mathematical formula that you, can, that you can then throw up on a blackboard and say to the experts, this is what God said to me, is it horseshit or what is it? Usually what happens in these self-risen kundalini or psychotic break or shamanic whatever or psychedelic runaway states is that there is a revelation and it's quirky and it's personalistic and it's usually messianic uh, and, it's, and it's unanchored. So people put you away because they just say, well, you have no proof that you're the Kavitz Haderach sent from Arcturus to lead mankind to milk and honey. You just say this, and you know, and you say it too much and too loudly and inappropriately, and so now we're going to drop a net over you. The good thing, in my view, of what happened to me is it actually got down to a mathematical proposition, a law, a hypothesized law, which is it may turn out to be false, but it, it was a contender. You understand what I mean? It played in the, in, the, uh, in the highest class of competition of all, which is in the realm of formal mathematical theory, as did Pythagoras, as did, as did some of Plato's work. If you're interested in this kind of thing, you know, read the 10th book of the Republic, the myth of Ur, do, you, do any of you recall what's going on there? This is this Plato. He's at this banquet, and then the conversation like turn, takes this sudden left turn, and he tells this story about this guy Ur, who was a soldier and died, and was dead eight days, and then came back, and then he lays out this rap, one of the most puzzling passages in the entire Platonic corpus, the myth of Ur, and it's this mathematical treatise about this thing called the spindle of necessity, 
which is the ratios are given and the, how it's something inside something else and something turns one way and something turns another way and the ratios are like this and like this. This is one of the most argued about passages in the ancient literature. What is being described? What does it mean? Well, it's another one of these mathematical downloads. I am still willing to argue that what I put down about the I Ching is true or that a truth is very close to the surface in all of that. Think about the I Ching for a moment. Um, This is uh, one of the world's oldest intellectual artifacts. This is a mathematical notation system of some sort for the purpose of creating a physics of time a phenomenological description of the order of time based on human observation. And it arises in a completely non-Western context. It arises in a context, we presume, of shamanism and uh, proto-Daoist values. And I think that what happened was that people with a very different set of agendas than those of Western civilization chased after an understanding of time in the same way that we chased after an understanding of matter. And the way you understand time is not by building enormous instruments or clashing elements together. Or No, time, the essence of understanding time lies in understanding organism. And so it yields to a very low-tech observational style of natural science which we call yoga, uh, by looking inside the body and the mind as you still gross physiological functions, uh, subtler and subtler shells of vibration and emanation and physiological activity come into view. And eventually, if you... Um, my hypothesis is that eventually if you do this with sufficient care and attention uh, you get down to some kind of level where the, you're actually at the level of the primal quantum mechanical vibrations that lie behind everything in other words you are in the realm of the primal patterns the primal patterns whose Activity downloads and eventuates as the macrophysical world. In other words, you're in the realm of the butterfly's wing in the chaos theory that says the butterfly's wing can start the cascade that leads to the hurricane. Well, these people who penetrated to this realm mapped it phenomenologically. They said time is a thing of elements in the same way that Western science discovered matter is a thing of elements. said, time is made of elements. Well, then the question immediately becomes for the rational mind, how many elements? A million? Ten thousand? One hundred? The answer is observe. Make notes. Observe similarities. Observe differences. Mathematically analyze your data. The answer is 64. Time comes in 64 irreducible species. And the hexagrams of the I Ching are simply a way of noting 
and assigning each one a distinct gestaltung for purposes of manipulation. And in the same way that plutonium is not sulfur and tin is not oxygen, these species of time display properties. Time is not, as Newton thought, pure duration, some kind of intellectual abstraction necessary for a serial universe. Time is a real thing. It's as palpable as electricity. It's as real as radiation. Uh, It's a thing. And so then what's going on is that uh, objects which arise in time carry the impress in their structure of the medium in which they arose. And so organism becomes a microcosmic downloading, a mapping of the architectonics of of being. I don't find this a cult at all. This seems to me quite reasonable. Uh, Let me give you an analogy to help you understand what I'm saying here. Uh, uh, Think of a sand dune. Notice that when you envision a sand dune, that it looks like wind. The thing in your mind looks like wind. Well, now let's analyze what's going on here. The sand dune looks like wind because sand dunes are made by wind. Okay, what is wind? Wind is a pressure gradient phenomenon that is variable in time. What is a sand dune? It's a download, a flattening. It's a one-dimensional picture of the wind. If you had a good computer and you had a sand dune, you could compute backward from the sand dune to the speed of the wind. Well now, taking that image, think of it this way. Think of the grains of sand as uh, genes. Think of the wind as 500 or 700 million years of time moving those genes around, blowing them around, recombining them, breaking them apart, pushing them together. At the end of that time, uh, life would bear the imprint of the medium in which it came to be. So it is, in fact, not a leap of occult faith that the human organism would have impressed upon it the categories uh, that shape time because we arose in time. And you keep talking about biology and you talk about the leap from biology into culture and you talk about the medium. Um, What do you think of the internet is the wind or the medium and that the mimetic qualities that are occurring in culture, you know, tying into the genetic codes like biology does, is the is the real medium for unfolding what I mentioned to you earlier, the global intuition. It seems like all of this stuff is fitting together these days. Well, there's this thing called the two to the sixth N rule. I'm not sure that I can quote it directly, but Benjamin Worf figured this out and it's that in any lexical tree no category on any level can contain more than two to the sixth n members in other words 64 
So, in a way, we're dimensionally imprisoned inside this because our minds work this way and so do our bodies. Uh, DNA, like the I Ching, runs on a code based on 64. There are 64 codons coding for the various amino acids that make up all the proteins that organize organic nature. Well, so you have the I Ching, which categorizes time as having 64 categories. You have the DNA, which arose as the most elegant expression of complexity in time, having six running on 64 categories. Then you have the human brain running on the platform of animal organization run by DNA. And we discover through Worf's law, the to the sixth N rule, that our lexical categories are ruled by these same uh, limitations. So it appears, you know, what I said earlier this morning, that life is undergoing some kind of conquest of geometry. And I almost picture it like protoplasm flowing into a crystal landscape. We conquer this geometry by assuming its shape in some sense. So it transforms us even as we overrun it. What a thought. What a thought. It transforms us even as we overrun it. You know, I guess the question is, are are we becoming our machines or are machines becoming us? Now, that's the real question today. And did you catch the part uh, about 2012 where he said, We spin it. We're the spin doctors of this thing. The details are ours to fabricate. So... If that's the case, then, uh, hey, let's start fabricating this thing in a more sustainable and less fearful way. You know, I, actually, I guess I, <laughs> no way I can tell you what to do to help our species prepare for some difficult times that I think are just ahead, but I can tell you to follow your heart. You know, I'm sure that deep inside you know what's the best road uh, for you to take, and and it may not be the easiest road, but, you know, it's the one with heart. Well, I hope you enjoyed hearing more of Terrence McKenna today. I've got a couple more of these to go, and I'll, I'll try to get them out as soon as I can. I uh, guess I ought to tell you that I'm in the process right now of moving to a new place, and so I won't be able to get uh, a new podcast out every week just like I'd like to, but uh, I hope you'll bear with me until I can get resettled again. Anyway, thanks for being with us here today in the Psychedelic Salon, and thanks again to Chateau Hayuk for the use of their fine music. And for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.